Kevin, get the facts. Be fact-based in the way you approach life. And this series is an attempt to follow the commands of God where he says this in 1 Peter 3.15. He says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. Always be prepared. And this is my attempt to help at least give you some material so that you can be prepared to give an answer for the people that you meet at work, Michelle. So that you are then equipped and not flummoxed by some of the questions that come your way. And you know what? Sometimes you may even find some that still flummox you, but at least you've got a grounding and you can say, that's a great question. Let me get back to you on that tomorrow. And at least you've got some way to move. So... Some of you today are sitting in this room and some of you still may be considering the claims of Christ in your life. The Bible would say this to you and encourage you. If you seek me, you will find me. But you need to seek me with all of your heart. So today, if you're still considering the claims of Christ, I would highly recommend you to do so with an open heart and an open mind. So, quick recap. In the series so far... There's reasons for believing. We've responded to six cultural challenges that challenge Christians. And we've seen that from the get-go, that real truth exists and it is knowable. That's very important. Secondly, we saw that God exists. We saw the evidence of that, in that, hey, there was a beginning. Before the beginning was, there was nothing. Science will tell you that. But where did all this come from? And how come it's all ordered? How come that is? See, last night, I was just thinking about you, Ben, there was a concert here. And there's lots of people playing music, uh, musical instruments. Now, the only reason why it sounds nice and orderly is that somebody's arranged the music. Lots of bass notes everywhere and notes, but to make it sound harmonious and, and melodic, one has to arrange the notes in a certain sequence. Have you ever heard something and somebody's maybe been practicing when you were kids and all of a sudden they put a note out of place and you go, oh, and you sort of cringe. Anybody heard that? Ever felt that? Or somebody sings a note off key. Anybody ever heard that? And you oh. Now the reason why that offends your ear is because it is misplaced. Because there are certain rules around music, how you arrange it so it flows in harmony. I love the group, the Pentatonics. They sing a cappella, which is with no music at all, and boy, are they amazing. But the reason why it sounds so beautiful is it's all mathematically precise. Music and math are very close. Anyway, we saw evidence from a beginning. And in that beginning, it wasn't just a big bang of an explosion, because I tell you what, if I take an explosion and I drop it in this room, it will not get more ordered. It will go from order to chaos. There'll be chairs everywhere and bits of light everywhere. It won't get more orderly. If I throw a bomb in, then there's a big explosion like the Big Bang. But the problem was, out of that big explosion came incredible order. Stunning order. You want to get your mind blown about order, you take a look at DNA. That is just mind-blowing. How, what, how in the world does DNA assemble itself, which with no machines and incredible precision, with not a stitch out of place? How does that happen? Then we looked at this creator and designer, and we saw that it seemed to match the God of the Bible. That creator, that designer, that moral lawgiver seemed to have characteristics similar to the God of the Bible. And then we clearly saw that if 
God exists, if you accept God exists, then miracles are possible. We saw that. That was logically consistent. And then we took some time to look at a bit of an overview, actually, of the New Testament, how we got to the New Testament, and we saw that it is reliable, and we saw the reasons for that. And we looked at the ancient history, and we looked at documents. In fact, the Bible is the most accurate, most reliable document in all of ancient history, confirmed by archaeology, confirmed by history, and confirmed by sources outside of the Bible. That's three, actually. Okay. Then, we looked at the challenge last week. Ah, Jesus never claimed to be God. No serious historian will ever dispute that Jesus existed. But who was this guy? Was he a flat-out lunatic? Look, if somebody stood up here today and said to you, Hello, my name's Bob and I'm God. You go, give me a bucket. The guy's an idiot. He's crazy. He's either a liar, a, a lunatic, like some people think they're Napoleon Bonaparte. You see that? He's mentally deranged. Or second, he knows he's not and he's flat out lying. That's the second possibility. And the third possibility is he actually is God. And that's exactly the same with Jesus. He was either a lunatic, we looked at that, cross it off. He was either a liar, we looked at that, cross it off. That left the only other possibility. He was the Lord. So today though, I want to look at a central claim of Christianity which you will face the questions on at university, in your home, from your grandchildren. You will face this question. They're going to say to you this. This is what the, the, the audacious claim looks like. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Okay, I'll give you existed, but he didn't rise from the dead. That's what you're going to get to. Now that could be a potentially serious and fatal problem if that was true. Why? Because if Jesus did not die, uh, did not um, come back from the dead, he was a false prophet. And therefore we cannot trust him. If he did not rise from the dead, he's a false prophet because he predicted his own death and resurrection. And if he didn't, he's a liar. Fair point? So, and also there's another problem which is hidden there. That the New Testament writers claimed they saw, they ate, they conversed with Jesus, the risen Jesus. Now, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then the New Testament is completely unreliable. Fair point. So, let's take a look at this. No one in history, nobody, zero, in the history of mankind has ever had the audacity to claim that somebody rose from the dead days after being declared dead, being embalmed, being stuck in a tomb. Nobody has ever done that. So Jesus is unique. Nobody ever has done that. Because not only did it happen, but he predicted his death and his resurrection multiple times. It wasn't just a one-off. Multiple times. The Son of God claimed he was going to die and be resurrected. Now, for instance, just a couple, because again, this is an overview. In Matthew 17, 22, the Bible says this, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. That's just one of many, many predictions. Matthew 12, 40 is another one. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now that's pretty much focused around his death. How about his resurrection? Predicting his resurrection, Jesus answered them this, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And the Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to build it, raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. John 2 19. So, if he didn't come out of his tomb, he would be a proven liar. 
He could not be God and therefore not our Savior. And Christianity's claim, central claim, would be false. And its founder, a fraud and a false prophet. If that true, uh, claim is not true. Now, if Jesus didn't come out of the tomb, here's how the Apostle Paul put this. This is what will be true in this case. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. This is pivotal, guys. More than that, we are then found to be a false witnesses. We're, telling, we're propagating falsehoods about God, for we have testified publicly, as you'll see later on, that he raised Christ from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins because there remains, there will be no payment for our sins. That's what Paul says. Now, a few points of clarification. I'm just going to focus on one at the moment. This is the word resurrection. I want to be clear about what this means. Resurrection means that somebody who has died returns as the same person. This is not to be confused with the heretical and nonsensical idea of reincarnation. Nothing like this. So resurrection means somebody who has died and returns as the same person in the same body. You will look like what you are, but an optimized version. Let me just say that. Your mother will recognize you. Your children will recognize you. But the resurrected bodies will never die again. That's the difference. It's been changed, just like Paul says here in Philippians 2. Jesus will transform our lowly bodies, the ones that we have now, which are broken, which get sick, which get tired, which run down, so that it will be like his glorious body. I'm looking forward to that day. Anybody else? Normal aches, pains, headaches. And that all comes as a part of the fall. Nothing ever worked properly again after the fall. Now, I want to say this. Biblical scholars and even critics. So some of our harshest critics agree that the tomb was found empty. Nobody's disputing that. Nobody, no secular historian disputes that. Days after his body was put in there, gone. I'm not talking a year after, I'm talking days. They agree that, even our critics. Now, so therefore, there have got to be some rather wild and inventive stories as to what happened to the body. <laughs> because who done it? Who took the body? How, how come that body's not there? They've got to explain that. So today I'm going to take you through five alternate explanations that you're going to hear. People will try and suggest these theories. And I want you to be forearmed, forewarned, and therefore forearmed. So, explanation number one is, well, somebody else died there on that cross. It wasn't Jesus. They died in Jesus' place. That's the first one you're going to hear. It really wasn't him. Islam, for example, claims that Allah would never have allowed one of his prophets, which is all they think he is, to die such an awful, shameful, and painful death. Can't possibly conceive of that. So they say, Muslims, if you come across the Muslims, they're going to say, well, Allah made somebody look like Jesus. That's what they're going to say. So don't be surprised about that. And that person was crucified by mistake. Some Muslims actually, and a sect of the Muslims actually believe it was Judas who was crucified. I'm just telling you what they believe. All right? So if you hear that, you're not surprised. Now, why is this, why is this answer wrong, this theory wrong? Well, a, first of all, there's no evidence for this. How could Jesus' mother 
and closest friends who were there not know the person on the cross wasn't Jesus. You would know if it's your son. I'd know if it was my son. Huh? So would you. Now, what about the mistake, you know, somebody else has put there on, on the cross instead of Jesus? Well, any man in his right mind will be yelling, You got the wrong guy! That's not something to be volunteering for. I will be, and so would you. <laughs> and also, consider the penalty of the other Roman guards there. If they crucified the wrong guy, you know what the Roman law said? Your neck's on the block. You're up there next. You better get this right. They were precise at that. So there was very uh, clear rules around how you process somebody through to make sure nothing got swizzled. So everyone involved with the death of Jesus, the Jews, they wanted to make sure their man was on the cross because they wanted him gone. The mother, for different reasons, that's my son. The Roman guards, that better be the right guy or we are dead. They all had their own reasons for making absolutely certain it was really him on the cross. Every one of them was convinced that it was Jesus on that cross. Those who knew him best, they watched him die and they buried him. We'll get to that later. They had absolutely no doubt it was him. The second explanation you may hear at school, high school, is, ah, Jesus only fainted on the cross. He wasn't really dead. And this view says that he kind of just passed out because of all the pain. And everyone, including the trained soldiers, though, and his enemies who wanted him dead, the soldiers said they could go home for dinner. The Jews said that the problem was finally gone. Their thorn in their flesh had gone. They wanted him to make sure he was dead. Everybody, and by the way, those trained soldiers... The Romans crucified thousands upon thousands upon thousands. So they knew, they knew how to do this. It's not like, oh, where do I put this nail? They'd done this many times. They were experts. But after he was buried in the tomb, this view says, he kind of revived somehow and found the disciples who mistakenly believed that he'd been resurrected. That's their view. That's what they think people who propose that. Now, the response to this idea, this crazy idea, is actually really quite simple. Jesus died. Let's look at three different ways to prove that fact. Now, what, I want to look at, first of all, what happened to Jesus before the cross? Before. In typical Roman fashion, before Jesus was sent to die, Jesus was beaten Severely. How many of you ever saw the, the movie The Passion? How many of you found it quite hard to take? I want to tell you, they lightened up on that for general audiences. I talked to some of the advisors who made that movie and said we had to. Nobody would see it. People would be being physically sick if they saw what happened. So that was kind of like G-rated, if you want to say when Jesus was whipped with those Romans, most people would come with an, an, a gnat's whisker of dying. They would be whipped so badly that often their spine would be exposed. Yeah. Their internal organs would sometimes... I'm just, yeah, I think well, we haven't got any kids in here. Actually, we do. Uh, exposed. They'd be hanging out. Okay? It was awful. And they'd likely start to fail because they're under such stress through massive blood loss. That was a fact. Remember Jesus had been up all night. He went through three illegal trials and he was so damaged and so physically weakened. How many of you picked up, you men picked up bags of cement? Yeah? How heavy are they? How much? Give me a kilogram. Okay, double that and add five. That's what we're talking about, carrying the crossbeam. A couple of misconceptions here. Uh, the Romans did crucifixion so often, they had a permanent pole going out the middle. 
So Jesus was never hauling around a cross this way and this way. What he was hauling around, which they did for all of them because he did this so often, they'd have the permanent pole stuck in the the ground and you could put a peg through it, but they'd have a cross beam. That cross beam was very, very solid and weighed 55 kilograms. Think about that. On your back. That has just been flayed open. It was so weak, in fact, that Simon of Cyrene was seconded to carry this. He's from Libya, by the way, to carry this. The fact that Simon was pressed into carrying Jesus' cross suggests that, suggests that Jesus was severely weakened even before he was nailed to that cross. You see where I'm going with that? Okay. Now, on the cross, so before the cross and on the cross, the Romans, let me say, used procedures that were designed to ensure the condemned person would die. Now, if they didn't die soon enough, which some of them did, some people have got different endurances, they would come along, which is common practice. You can read about this. Stephen, you can pick up a history book and you can read about this. And they would break their legs because where they would pin their feet, they would, they would push up and down on their legs like this. And it kept them alive. It tortured them, literally. And so to stop them doing that, and if they dropped, they'd suffocate. So they would break a leg to stop them. That's literally, you read it up. That's exactly what they did. So often they would die of suffocation, if not bloodlust. The point is that after the legs were broken, death would follow very quickly. Now, Let's go completely away from this and take some impartial advice from the Mayo Clinic. Anybody heard of the Mayo Clinic? Very illustrious, high, top-notch clinic in the USA. A group headed by William D. Edwards of the Mayo Clinic did a study on the death of Jesus. And Edwards is actually a cardiovascular pathologist. And he studies hearts, he studies veins and arteries in the human body. And after examining the events surrounding the crucifixion, he concluded that Jesus was dead when he was taken down on the cross. And he went on to say, to underline the point, this is what I'm going to get to, and you need to use this. Anyone who believes that Jesus did not die on the cross is at odds with modern medical knowledge. This is just one of many I could have pulled, outside sources. These experienced soldiers trained to crucify for maximum effect were so certain that Jesus had died they didn't even follow the procedure of breaking his leg because he was already gone. But just to make sure, they took a spear and stabbed him in the side. Now there's a whole bunch of medical explanations as to what happened there. Very intriguing. We haven't got time to go into those today. Now, the Bible outlines a sequence of events, picking up from Matthew 15, uh, Mark 15. It was preparation day, the day before the Sabbath. We call this Good Friday. Friday. The Sabbath is on the Saturday for the Jews. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council of these rulers, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus had already, what? Was already dead. But he's like a person from Missouri, doesn't believe anything, he says, show me. So he summons a centurion, he says, oi, come here. He says, has Jesus already died? And when he learned from the centurion, It was so. He gave Joseph the body. Now to grasp how absolutely sure people were that Jesus was dead, consider. In preparing the body for the burial, in that cave, Joseph of Arimathea, he was a rich man, The Jews would cover the body with 45 kilograms, think about that in terms of concrete sacks, guys, again, of spices. And they were sticky spices. 
Kind of like what? Similar to what the Egyptians did for mummies. And then, for good measure, you'd wrap them all up in linen cloths. Right? So you're sticky and you're bound up. Somewhat suffocating, some would say. Now, other historical accounts also mention the death of Jesus. The Roman historian Phallus, for example, wrote, this, is, this guy's not even a believer. He's just a flat-out, matter-of-fact historian. Listen, he says this, I didn't put that in there. He says, the darkness that fell upon the land and the earthquake, talks about the darkness that fell upon the land and the earthquake that happened whilst Christ was on the cross. I seem to have read that somewhere before in the scriptures. Then, another Roman historian, Phlegon, wrote this. I'll put this one in for you. Jesus arose after death. This guy is not even a Christian believer. And exhibits the marks of his punishment. And showed his hands, interesting he talks about this, that and had and had been pierced by that had been pierced by nails. These men wrote very matter of factly about Christ's death. They were not believers, and they had zero reason to report something they did not believe that was true. Zero. I mean, actually, they were employed by the enemy. This is not. This, let me say this: there is not one account in history from that time that disputes his death. Nobody. It's a solid fact. Based on eyewitness testimonies of foe and friend. Both. And it's also proven by the standards of modern medical evidence. So, another, which is number three, another argument against the resurrection says, well... The way we could explain this is that all of the disciples had mass hallucinations. Uh, Trust me, as crazy as it sounds, they put that out there. And they only thought that they'd seen Jesus. Now, what's wrong with that view? Well, firstly, hallucinations are normally caused by alcohol or drug infused or lack of food or lack of sleep. Mind-altering circumstances. And they normally last for a short period of time. They're not enduring. And they normally only happen to one person. It's not contagious like a cough. (laughs) You see one thing and somebody else sees something different. That's important. They're personal. Only the person having the hallucination can see that hallucination. It's not kind of like broadcast on TV so everybody else can. Now... The disciples did not have a mass hallucination. Why? Because they saw Jesus for long stretches of time on at least 12 separate occasions for over 40 days, the Bible says. They saw his crucifixion scars. Who who wanted to see those up close? Yeah. Yeah. Thomas, show me them, Lord. Help me in my unbelief. I believe, help me in my unbelief. Show me, show me. I just want to see him. They touched him. They talked with him. They listened to him for 40 days. They ate with him for a month. Think about it, just over a month. So their conviction that he truly rose from the dead did not fade but stayed with them over the rest of their lives, and all of them, bar one, died as martyrs, still proclaiming till the very last breath that they had seen the risen Lord. Nothing would shake that. Yeah, reasonable. Quick sidebar here to discuss a few things. What if Jesus had survived? What if? Suppose for a nanosecond that were true. Try answering these. How would you answer these questions? One, how did Jesus manage to unwrap himself and get out of that 45 kilograms of spices and scrape them all off his body, especially his back? Hmm? A bit messy, eh? 
Two. How are you going to move the stone when you've got the guards outside? And it's a huge stone. They are massive. How did he manage to elude the Roman guards? Who you'll see were still there later. Next one. How could he convince the disciples that he'd risen from the dead? He'd been be- he would be barely alive. And his body would have been a bloody mess. Hey, I'm here. I've always been, I'm here, That's crazy. Would you, would you convince these people to lay down their lives for that? You're not convincing me, mate. How would such a man in such a condition inspire the disciples? You ever thought about that? To give their lives. Why did the disciples die? Most of them suffered the most atrocious deaths. We think the crucifixion was bad. You should see what they did to some of the disciples. And they didn't recant, ever. (laughs) This is a a, a real showstopper for me. Why did the sceptical half-brother of Jesus, and his name was James, why did James, when he saw the risen saviour, his risen brother, half-brother Jesus, how come he all of a sudden went from being a high skeptic, nobody had to convince your own family, right? <laughs> to all of a sudden become the pastor of the Jerusalem church right in the middle of the, of the Jewish you know, worship in there. Is uh, a pastor of the Jerusalem church and willing to die a martyr's death. Why would he do that? Good question. Quite a few good questions. By the way, on that issue, how many of you seen this? In October of 2002, one of the most earliest and important discoveries relating to James, this man we just talked about, Jesus' half-brother, was discovered. This is a limestone ossuary. It's about the size of that speaker box there, that black one there. And this is a very unusual, um, if you just click one more time there, you may not see it, but I'm going to zoom in on that in this next slide. And there there's an inscription. When this inscription was found, or made public, should I say, in 2002, you can read about this. It shocked the world. Because if you can read Hebrew, what that says from there is Joseph. Sorry, James. The son of Joseph. The brother of Jesus. Jesus. The book of Acts tells us that James was a pastor of the Jerusalem church. He was the moderator of the Jerusalem council in Acts 15 and he wrote the epistle of James. This is the guy. Now, there was one enormous legal battle over this in the high courts in Israel, which I followed intently. Conclusion? This is authentic. Amazing. That is the half-brother of Jesus. James is also spoken of by secular historians, specifically Josephus, who wasn't even a believer. He was put to death, this guy James, in AD 62, by the Jewish leaders again. Now, that's just an interesting sidebar. You want to read more about biblical archaeology? You pick up my friend's book, Dr. Joseph Holden, Biblical Archaeology. It's got everything in there. Good, hard science. And archaeology. Explanation number four. Well, the body was gone, but guess what? Somebody moved it or stole it. Why is this view flawed? Well, can you think about the number of obstacles anyone wanting to move Jesus' body would have had to overcome? Firstly, Pilate had ruled and ordered the team, the tomb, to be sealed with his seal and guarded. Because they knew. I mean, those Jews were dumb. Well, they were in one sense, but not in another. They'd heard they were going to plan on this resurrection deal, so they thought, we're going to stitch this safe shut. So they stitched it shut, all right. They sealed the sucker, stuck a seal on, and plonked guards around there. Because if he did come back, the first problem would be nothing compared to the second problem. If he comes back out of that tomb, we're in serious trouble. So they wanted to make sure that there was no shenanigans going on here. 
Now, if the Roman guards, let's take them from their point of view, failed in their duty and they let something happen here, they could, could be executed. The penalty, by the way, you look it up, of breaking a Roman seal with death, was death by crucifixion. That was the penalty for breaking that seal. So let me tell you, Martin, if you're in charge of that, nobody's coming near it. <laughs> Nobody. Apart from the large stone. The Jewish leaders were glad that Jesus was dead and buried, and they lacked any motive to move that body. Would you agree? Oh, leave that thing there. Don't touch it. What about the disciples? Let's just flick back to what the, what's going on in the disciples' minds right now, okay? Remember? These quibbling mice of men ran away and left him, apart from John. They were so scared, they found themselves a little corner cafe, locked the doors for fear of the authorities, and were trembling. What have we just wasted our life for? We had successful businesses before. We had a great fishing business going on. Huge tax collection and revenue. Nothing's changed, does it? You know, we had good businesses going on. What possibly could have compelled them to attempt to kidnap the body of Jesus? What would Jesus' disciple, who already have wussed out and run off at the arrest of Jesus, risk returning to a guarded sealed tomb in an effort to steal a very sticky, wrapped up body? An offence that would immediately incur the death penalty. What rationale would you have for that? And by the way, would they have had, let's just suppose they did for some ridiculous reason, would they have had the time to unwrap the body and then do the laundry and leave the grave cloth nicely folded in, in the tomb? You end up committing a robbery, mate. You get in there and you get the hang out of Dodge fast, right? You don't sit there unwrapping it and placing it neatly there, <laughs> folding the sheets. You wouldn't do that. That's insane. How about explanation number five? Novel. Jesus organized a resurrection conspiracy plot. And this theory goes like this. Well, Jesus came up with an elaborate scheme. See how the lens are going to? To fulfill messianic prophecies, including death by crucifixion. Now, the co-conspirators would get his body after it was taken down and then nurse Jesus back to health. That's what some of them are going to try and tell you. After reviving and recovering, Jesus would then go on to claim to to all these people who would see him that, well, I'm now resurrected. Now, what's wrong with that view? Consider this. How could anybody arrange to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies, the city of their birth. Did you arrange to be born where you were born? No, that was just where your parents were. Or the tribe, the tribe that you would come from. I could go on endlessly on that. How about this one? This is hard to reproduce. How about the virgin birth? Anybody of you virgin born here? Okay, that knocks out most of us. Okay. Uh, not only that, not only virgin, how about the exact date of your birth? How about the exact date of your death? Anybody arrange any of that? Pretty hard, eh? Or, how could you conspire to do a miracle with somebody that the whole village had known this little nipper since he was born blind for his whole life, and then along comes a guy called Jesus, and zap! He can see! And the parents, when they quiz them, say, whoa, don't ask us, you go ask him. He's been born blind since birth. How did that happen? Well, how about the prophecies? Let me just come across. The prophecies that were fulfilled in his birth, just his birth alone, were 100 of them. Ridiculously unlikely. How about this? How about arranging to be betrayed by a friend? Psalm 41 verse 9. You may want to write that down. Go look. Psalm 41 verse 9. For exactly 30 pieces of silver, hundreds of years beforehand. You can see that. In Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. And by the way, the crook that betrays you for 30 pieces of silver goes and buys a piece of land called, what? Potter's Field, which was predicted to the exact name. Whoa. 
And then he would be death by crucifixion, which was predicted before crucifixion even was invented. He'd be pierced in the side, not a a bone in his body would be broken. And then he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. This is getting more and more implausible every layer we lay on this. There is absolutely zero evidence for this view. It's the result in its entirety of someone's speculative, imaginative, wishful thinking. That's what that is. Okay. So what have we shown so far? Just a quick recap. We've so far shown that it really was Jesus that was on that cross. Two, he really died. And that's not just not back then saying it's medical science, and I could have given you a lot more of it today that same act. Three, Jesus' dead body was put in a sealed tomb. We can show that from impartial, unfriendly foes who record this, historians. Now, we'll take a short look at some facts that support the historical, factual, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. First, let's look at even skeptics. Even skeptics will admit that the tomb of Jesus was found to be empty. They'll admit that within a few days of his death. The Romans and the Jews declared it was empty. Jesus' followers, both men and women, declared the same. And if it hadn't been, why didn't the Jews and the Romans enter the tomb and produce the body saying, here he is, and that cuts that story short straight away. Here's the evidence. This is not done miles away. This is done exactly in the same place. They just whip out the body to prove it false. To quash that. It wasn't there and it was never found anywhere else. So the issue is, how do people explain the fact that it was empty? The Jewish leader's take was this, that the disciples came at night and stole the body. That's what the rumour went around. Well, the soldiers slept. By the way, that's a whole bunch of hocus-pocus because if you recall napping on the job, you're in trouble in the military. Big trouble. So, let's pick it up from here. Acts, actually, while a woman just away, were on their way, and that what, on their way, what does that mean? It means if you read the context there, they were running to find the disciples and they were in a lather. That the resurrection happened. Now when they were running that way, the guards and another group was running to tell the truth. The guards and the others were going another direction to counteract the truth. Notice this. Some of the guards, who by that time were in a real dither. Come on. You imagine you're the guard. Holy smokes, the flipping body's gone. And we knew that, the stone had wrong. But if we go and tell it, we're going to, we're in trouble. So what do we do? But we're supposed to be here. We're going, but whatever we do, we're in a pickle. So anyway, they overcome their fear and they go into the city, these guards, and report to the chief priests everything that had happened. Now, when the chief priests, who were the guys who really wanted them on that cross, met with the elders, they devised, the scriptures tell us what happened there, a plan. So they gave the soldiers a large sum of money. A bribe works wonders, eh? Eh? It must have been worth it. It must have been a chunk of change because the soldiers took it and they did as instructed. Telling them to say, you are to say this. His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now if this report gets to the governor... Look at their approach again. We will satisfy him. Guess what that means? We'll satisfy him. We're happy he's gone. We're not sure what's gone on, but we'll just keep it down. With another large sum of money and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and these are instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So, The Jewish leaders said the disciples stole the body. Clear? The disciples, on the other hand, said Jesus was resurrected. Two contrary views. Which explanation is correct here? The Jewish leaders or the disciples? Here's a couple of quick questions to help you decide what you think. Why 
Why, 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 just days after the crucifixion, would the disciples have such a dramatic change of heart so that they start proclaiming an outrageous story which is known to draw fire from all sources? Why would they do, do that, a story that they didn't believe? Explain that to me. You need to ask your friend who's not sure. Explain that to me. Consider the disciples have been recently hiding, afraid of their lives. Why would they suddenly put their lives on the line and preach this pretty much at the gates of hell where they're going to get hellfire and brimstone coming at them? When it could have easily been disproven. Somebody just had to front up with the bones of the body. How can you explain the fact as well, which is more mind-blowing, that a large number of Jewish priests became Christians and believed Jesus rose from the dead? That's a 180-degree turn a short time after he was crucified. How do you explain that? Look at this in Acts 6, 7. So the word of God spread... And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. The church grew. Because of the resurrection, where was the body? Where was the body? Lots of people saw him. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. That there is a modern day miracle. Those guys were going completely the opposite direction. This was totally foreign to them. So the best explanation for the tomb was empty was simply this. The disciples were telling the truth. And the guards were lying. Jesus had been truly raised. Secondly, there were multiple eyewitnesses. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, as we could in all four Gospels, testify that men and women personally saw the risen Jesus. He bore the nail marks in his hands and his feet and the marks of the Roman spear had been pierced. Otherwise, there was no other evidence that he'd been crucified. That was it. That's all the Bible records. And he was certainly not in a weakened condition. His body was not a bloody shredded mess. Now, on 12 separate occasions, over 500 people saw, over 40 days, indoors and outdoors, saw this. In Jerusalem and Galilee, and that's a fair haul apart. He ate with them, he drank with them, he conversed with them. They touched him, they saw his scars, listened to him teach. He did miracles so there will be no doubt that this was Jesus who had been raised. Look at what Dr. Luke wrote in Acts 1.3. After his suffering, this is post-resurrection, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs, they are miracles, that he was alive. And he appeared to them over a period of, how many? Remember that, 40 days. And spoke about the kingdom of God. Third, Luke reported that within weeks of the crucifixion that thousands of Jews in Jerusalem, like the Mecca, had been converted They believed he was the son of God. What totally transformed them, completely blew away every faith blocker, every roadblock, was that he'd been resurrected. That's what blew him out of the water. Soon there were about 5,000 Jewish men, Acts 4.4 says this. That's a lot of men. Including many priests in the city, Acts 6.7. Why did that happen so quickly? Explain that in a religious setting. Bang! This cut to all the clutter. Why in the heart of Jerusalem, the heart of Judaism, did all these people all of a sudden convert? Explain that. When they thought they were doing the right thing, holding on for dear de- to dear death, the laws of Moses so tightly, they wouldn't let go of it. And then all of a sudden, bang. Massive transformation. What happened there? Think about what it would have taken for a Jew to become a follower of Jesus. He would have had to be utterly convinced. 
that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that he was God, and the only way they prove that, apart from the prophecies, is just what they'd seen. He was raised from the dead. After years of refusing to believe, when he was with them, that was the final miracle that snapped them. Why would all these Jews suddenly change their mind, is my question to you. Why would so many now be so convinced that Jesus had been raised unless they were certain, certain it was true? Something most unusual and something most spectacular must have happened. Something like maybe a man being raised from the dead. Fourth, the disciples died for their belief in the resurrection. They died. Why were the disciples killed? Why were they killed, guys? Somebody want to offer me a, an answer or two on that one? Why were they killed? So what? Yes? They wouldn't stop talking about Jesus' resurrection. Yeah. And what did, if he was resurrected, what did that prove? That he was the son of God. He was God. That doesn't happen all the time. Now let me give you a few facts on this. Some of you may not have heard this before. Peter, Andrew, and Simon, for those of you note-takers, I'll slow down, were all crucified. And you can see that historically. I'm just giving you the overview. Matthew, he got the quick treatment. And it's just simply by a sword. Mark the author of the book of Mark, was dragged to death by horses through Alexander streets. Some of you who've watched some of the other uh, movies that portray that time can imagine. I'm just being careful for a young individual here. You understand what I'm saying? That's how he died. James was beheaded. James the Greater, James the Just, was thrown down from the pinnacle of the temple after refusing to deny Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. Thaddeus was killed by arrows. Thomas was run through by a spear in India. And actually he was buried. He is buried in India. Thomas is. You can actually go to the, um, the shrine where they've built there, Thomas. Bartholomew, also known as, uh, as Nathaniel, uh, was whipped to death in Armenia. We have history around that. And finally, Matthias was stoned and beheaded. John was the only guy that... Well, he wrote the last part of the New Testament, he's known. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation. He was on the Isle of Patmos, which is in the Greek islands. And you can go to the cave where he spent time there. Now, why would these men die agonizing deaths? This is not filled with morphine. This is not palliative care. This is the chop, man. Why would they die agonizing deaths? Unless they knew for certain... What they believed is true, and they counted death as nothing. That makes sense then. If they had any doubts that Jesus was raised, surely at least one of them would have changed his story to save his own hide. Huh? At least one. So, now, with this, I want to wrap this up and summarize. Probably the world expert on the resurrection of Jesus, so those of you who want to dig more on that, or want to equip yourself more, or friends, need to pick up a book by Gary Habermas. What Gary did, he's recently completed the most comprehensive investigation to date on what scholars believe about the resurrection. And this, by the way, is skeptical scholars who are not even Christians, just flat-out historians, all the way through. So he took 1,400 scholarly, this is academia land, where they look at all the history and the archaeology, and he compiled them all and summarized them in one work. So this is not necessarily a Christian book. It's looking at what is the hardcore evidence of the resurrection. And you'll find it in the book called The Risen Jesus and Future Hope. And he reports, if you take the time to read that, virtually all scholars from ultra-liberal, who don't even believe the Bible is to be taken literally, all the way to conservatives agree on the following points concerning Jesus, 
and Christianity. And these are actual historical facts that they agree on. One, Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. Two, he was buried in a private tomb. Three, afterwards the disciples were very discouraged, bereaved, disappointed, and had lost all hope. In fact, they went back to their businesses. Four, the tomb was found empty very soon after his interment. Five, the disciples had experienced what they believed were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. Six, because of these experiences, the disciples were thoroughly transformed from mice to men. Seven, the proclamation of the resurrection took place very early from the beginning of church history. That's important. No time for all these legends. Straight away. Eight, the disciples' public testimony, preaching of the resurrection took place in the city of Jerusalem. Where Jesus was crucified and buried shortly before. They all agree that. Nine, the gospel message centered on the preaching of death of the resurre- and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the core of the gospel. Sunday was all of a sudden the primary day for gathering and worship. Massive change. An anathema to the Jews. No, Saturday is a holy day. Something happened. It changed to Sunday. James, the brother of Jesus, they will agree this. And a skeptic, they agree that. Before this time was converted when he saw the risen Jesus. As you would be. As you would be. And then just a few later, years later, the equivalent of the ancient Adolf Eichmann. Anybody know who he is? Yeah, from the Second World War. Hitler's right henchman. The equivalent of him... Saul of Tarsus, Paul, going after Jews with zealous abandonment to uh, Christians to kill them and to shut this story up. Due to an experience he had when he saw Jesus completely converted and ended up writing most of the New Testament. He wasn't exactly friendly before. In fact, people were avoiding him. So, the evidence for the resurrection of Christ has certainly convinced many people who have taken the time to investigate it. Be careful, Christian, not to get sidetracked down people's uh, uh, just for debating sake. A good quick way to qualify them is to say this. Friend, if Christianity was true, would you want to be a Christian? If they say no, bless them. And move on your way. But if they say, yes, I would be, if it was true, now you have a platform to engage them. You never force it down anybody. But you are called by God to be prepared to give an answer and account for the hope that lies within you with gentleness and with respect. Now, Sir Lionel Lookhu. What a name. Eh? He was a fam- You'll find him in the Guinness Book of Records. Cited, he's cited there for having the most successive acquittals, actually 245 successive acquittals in murder trials. This guy is the lawyer extraordinaire. He's made it into the Guinness Book of Records as the most successful in the world. This is what he says about the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. This is his words, the top lawyer in the world. I have spent more than 42 years as a defense trial lawyer appearing in many parts of the world, and I am still in active practice. I have been fortunate to secure a number of successes in jury trials, and I say unequivocally, without equal, without reservation, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. Did you know that, friend? Many who initially refused to accept the resurrection and have become convinced of its historicity and accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. So what have we learnt? In the light of this evidence, we have learnt, here's a question, and by the way, we should be asking this question to a sceptic too, if it comes up. Remember, you can turn the tables on them. Rather than you be answering all the questions, you ask them a couple of questions like, in the light of this evidence, what happened in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago? that so changed the disciples that they were willing to die for their belief 
in the resurrection. What happened? Can you explain that to me, please? The only answer that can, that it can actually uh, was is that they actually saw the risen Lord. They did not have a mass hallucination. They were not part of some grand plot, and they saw the living Christ and followed him to the very end. Now, I want to wrap up. As part of our discussion, you may recall, those of you who were with us at the very start of this, we started to look at, uh, we narrowed it down to three theistic religions. Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. All of them maintain that God exists and that he created everything. That God is a beginner, he's a creative designer, and he's a moral lawmaker. Now, it's time to ask out how each of these worldviews matches the facts that we've considered over the last few weeks about the New Testament documents about Jesus Christ. Based on the evidence for the reliability of the New Testament, the claims of Jesus to be God, the proof that Jesus is God, and the evidence for the resurrection, we can, as you will see, rule out Judaism and Islam. Why? Because of the simple fact. Neither Judaism nor Islam affirm that Jesus is God. Neither of them do. Now, either he is or he isn't. If he is, those two are gone. And we've looked at some of the evidence. We're going to look at that. Remember, the law of non-contradiction says that two contradictory truth claims cannot be true at the same time. He He either was God or he was not. And the evidence showed that Jesus both claimed to be God and proved to be God and he was raised from the dead. So based on the New Testament alone, uh, on the evidence alone, we must conclude that Judaism and Islam are incorrect in what they maintain about the nature, the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at this table. In terms of the New Testament documents, are they reliable? Christianity says absolutely yes and we've shown you why. We show you empirical proof. Remember? 36,000 documents we have of ours. But yet Judaism doesn't accept those accounts. And Islam says they're not reliable. Next one, did Jesus claim to be God? Judaism and Islam say no. We, of course, say yes. Next one, did Jesus prove to be God? Judaism says no. Islam says no. Of course, we've just looked at that and said yes. And did Jesus die from, uh, rise from the dead? Judaism says no. And, of course, as I mentioned at the beginning, Islam says, wow, uh, somebody else took his place. That's what they say. And we say, of course, yes, he did. So our truth claims are completely contradictory to the other two. So remember the point of that is never let anybody tell you that all religions are the same. That is blatant nonsense. They're not. They're fundamentally different. Is a teaspoon the same as a pan? No. Okay. So by denying Christ's death, his deity... And his resurrection, many sincere Muslims and Jews have turned their back on God's gracious provision of salvation through Jesus' sacrifice on that cross. They don't accept it. No, don't accept it. We're just going to keep on working to do our thing. But the Bible says to us, friends, that we are to pray for all those who do not know that Jesus is truly God. We need to share with them, be prepared to share with them, the evidence that he is God. And it is our job, if not ours, who else's? It is our job to share with them the good news. Not only that he died for the sins of the whole world, but he also proved that he is God by rising from the dead. Now there's some interesting questions that are going to come. Okay, we've seen the proof so far along. But what about those who've never heard? We're going to address that in the next week or two. Then we're just about finished before Christmas. But we're going to come to some of those objections and I'm going to try and give you several of those so that you can have those. You can put that in as those arguments are clear to you. That's my hope, that you be equipped to give an account for the hope that lies within you. Father, I thank you for this time we can spend in, Lord, your word and around your word looking at the incredible history-splitting event when you died on that cross. Thank you, Lord, that you not only died, but you came back to life. 
And there's why we sit here today, 2014 years. A.D. And that Domini in the year of our Lord. Lord, thank you for this time. I pray that our people would absorb and be prepared to share what they've learned about the good news with those around them in the office, with their neighbours, with the kids at school, Lord. I pray that you give them wisdom and give them ears to understand and eye and a heart to perceive those who are soft and open. Hearts that you have already prepared for them to share the good news with. I pray that you give courage like you did to the disciples. A bold, burning, white-hot courage to share, Lord, the truths of your word with conviction and clarity. In the powerful name of Jesus and all the people said, Amen. Amen.